0: HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure. Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello
1: and welcome back to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education and Communications for the Huntington Study Group. On this episode, I spoke with Brendan McLaren from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Brendan, at the time of this podcast, recording anyways, is a Doctor of Psychology candidate specializing in clinical neuropsychology which we'll get into more throughout the episode. Brendan recently presented a research abstract at the annual meeting of the Huntington study group on how a mobile app-based assessment shows that less physical activity and longer time in bed associate with poor cognitive functioning in pre-manifest and early manifest Huntington's disease. It's a really interesting look at these two areas which don't have much in the way of prior research. And it combines the use of some popular and well-known technology. So with that, let's get right into this episode of the HD Insights Podcast. I'm joined now by Brendan McLaren for this episode of the HD Insights Podcast. And and Brendan, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: No problem, Uh, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. And also I wanted to say just thank you for the podcast in general and and the work to bring useful information and I guess, cutting edge research and so on to, to the community more broadly. I think it's very important that, that so, something such as this podcast is available.
1: Uh, well, it's our pleasure. And, and uh, you know, speaking of research, you know, that was one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on is because you recently presented an abstract for um, work that you have been doing at the uh, HSG annual meeting uh, that was held virtually back in October. And I found the, you know, the the topic of it and some of the work uh, and what was reported very interesting. And I I think the audience will like it as well. So um, a lot of that research centered around uh, the impact of physical activity and uh, bedtime or sleep as it impacts patients with Huntington's disease. So I guess, uh, you know, why don't we start there? If If you can give just, you know, a very brief background on... You know what the nature of of that uh, research effort was, and and how it kind of got started for you.
2: Sure. So I guess maybe with where it started um, was this research that we did was part of my um, like PhD thesis, essentially slightly different than a PhD thesis. Um, and the aspect of looking at lifestyle factors, especially exercise and sleep, is just something that I'm personally very interested in, and I see as uh, being very important generally for everybody, not just people with Huntington's disease, but, but generally. And so that was something that I wanted to bring in uh, to, to the research uh, that I was doing, uh, especially because looking when you look a bit more broadly uh, at the research literature in, in the general population or outside of HD, there is a good amount of research that would say, you know, if you exercise regularly or if you sleep well, it's going to benefit the way that you think the next day or during the week. Um, And I noticed that really the the amount of research for Huntington's disease uh, in that area is quite small. And so it means uh, that perhaps clinicians don't necessarily have a really strong research base to give recommendations to patients. Uh, And that was something that I wanted to help with and provide a bit more strong information on.
1: So the research that you did, For this project, I, I, I noticed that, uh, you know, there's, when it comes to um, risk factors for other um, types of diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, um, there, there's some correlations between physical activity and impaired sleep. But like you said, it hasn't really been studied in um, in folks that have Huntington's disease, Did, had you had experience with those uh, with those other diseases and, and that, or was that just something that you kind of uh, use as a benchmark or found as you were going through the project?
2: It was more more so something that that I, I noticed when I was doing the reading and, and planning my project and, and thinking about uh, what what sort of things I could measure and, and investigate. I noticed that really, yeah, there was good evidence to suggest even with interventions like for people with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease that are uh, changing their exercise habits or sleeping well would benefit their cognition uh, but that there was just much less there's a small amount of information in, in Huntington's disease to suggest uh, that Maybe uh, there's some research saying that a later wake time, so waking later in the morning, seems to associate with poor cognitive functioning in, in Huntington's disease. And that's both in the pre pre preclinical stage and the clinical stage, or a small amount of research on uh, really one study, just about <laughs> was all I could find, uh, correlating physical activity to um, cognition in HD. So I was like, okay, there's, there's something there and we would expect something, perhaps from the other uh, literature out there, but just not enough. And um, yeah, I wanted to investigate that. So um, that's what we we're able to do. And also in a different way, um, a lot of the research out there would have maybe people wearing a, a activity monitor or completing some sort of sleep diary and then going into the clinic and completing the cognitive tasks uh, where we took an approach where we had a, an app with cognitive tasks. So we're able to measure the two things together in people's homes to get a, a nice, more, we might say, ecological valid understanding of how those daily habits relate to how people are functioning with their thinking skills in their home.
1: Can you, uh, can you talk about that a little bit more? So there's a heavy technology component to this as well. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this study is the fact that you're using or you used... Um, uh, some some tools and some wearables that, uh, you know, are, are fairly common for people that, you know, are, are into exercise kind of on their their normal um, as part of their normal routine. But then there's also uh, another technology, uh, mobile technology um, element that you use for that. So can you can you talk about those? Uh, Absolutely.
2: Um, It'd be my my pleasure to talk about that. So uh, for my my doctoral project, uh, we developed um, a smartphone application, which we're calling HD Mobile, um, and the app itself had three cognitive tasks, uh, so three tests of thinking skills uh, that the participants in the study could could complete uh, these tests. We had them do it a few times over a week. Uh, For this study, we looked at their performance at the end of the week. Um, And the app also, we included a sleep diary so people could log their sleep, when they went to sleep, when they woke up, how they slept, and also questions about mood um, and so on. Um, And the focus for this was that we wanted, I guess, two two main things. One was to make uh, research or research participation more available to everybody, um, especially here in Australia. Um, there's really a few places in the whole country which is about the same size as the usa where there's hd research being conducted or there's a hd clinic so we wanted to be able to collect information and be connected with people all over the country Um, so that was one of the focuses and also the ability to just measure people in their home environments and really understand how people are functioning in their home. And the use of those technologies, the the Fitbits, which is always measuring how you're moving and sleeping. And the app where we could get regular measurements of thinking skills allowed us to just get more information and, and look at how people are functioning day to day instead of maybe once a year in a clinic visit.
1: So the development of that mobile app that you talked about, the HD Mobile, how how intensive a project was that? Was that kind of a was that a precursor to the study, or was that actually a part of the study and just a, you know a logical outcome of you know you want to you want to research this these particular activities? We need a mobile app customized specifically to what we're capturing.
2: So, good good question. It was all wrapped up in one and quite intense uh, and somewhat scary as a student researcher, uh, because the first step, I guess, as you hinted at, was that we had to show that the cognitive tasks and everything in the app worked and was reliable. Um, And then the second step, after you show, okay, we can trust the measures that we're getting in terms of these cognitive tests, we can once we've shown that, then you can pair those and see how they relate to the amount of calories a person is expending per day uh, that we got from the Fitbit. So it was a step process in that we had to show the app worked first before we could really study those relationships uh, between the cognitive information from the app and people's exercise. Uh, but it was also all wrapped up into the one project. So it was a little bit scary on my side, because uh, if the cognitive task didn't work as we expected, that it, it would have made the other aspects of the research difficult to do.
1: Now, when you did the testing for the the uh, the cognitive testing for the app, did you have to benchmark it against uh, a control group and potential patients, or did you just go in testing it with uh, with you know participants or or uh, study subjects? So, yeah, we,
2: we benchmarked both against uh, healthy, healthy controls. So we had our participants from the HD community uh, who graciously gave their time. And then we also had um, some healthy control participants who are also uh, terrific for us. Um, and then there was a group of our participants uh, with the, the gene for Huntington's disease that were also involved in enroll in HD, uh, which I guess some of the audience might know about, which is a large international study where people come once a year and as part of that visit to the clinic they do some cognitive tasks. So we're able to compare how uh, the people in our HD group were kind of performing against healthy controls and we're also able to run some correlations between um, the how our HD group were performing on the app versus how they're performing on some in-person tests as part of their enrol HD participation.
1: Can you talk about um the the population the participant population you know how many people were you able to enroll in the study um you know did you did you hit your enrollment targets and uh, were there any did you have any issues um finding people interested in in doing this or you know were, i guess the other part of the question would be too because of you know the sensors and collecting the data constantly were you know did you have privacy concerns that you had to address as well
2: okay so Let's go. In some ways, we would have loved. You can always. You would always want more participants. I suppose. Uh, In terms of recruitment, we did find it quite easy to get people interested, especially as we had people. um, We have a, a database or a group of people that participate in our research out of Monash University, and oftentimes they may be interested in a study, but they can't travel to Monash University because they live a few hours away. Um, So we had a great uptake um, in terms of people wanting to participate because they could. Um, It didn't matter if they live a thousand kilometers away, they could be involved. So, uh, and even through Facebook recruitment, uh, we're able to, to get people involved and interested in that way. Um, The numbers were a little bit small because because we needed or had people wearing a Fitbit We needed to mail those out to people and get them back So that was actually the the limiting factor in terms of our recruitment um, And not so much the keenness uh, or interest in people being involved um, And and wanting to try this app and see how it worked Um, Which I guess answers the first part of the question there hopefully in terms of privacy uh, that was something that obviously paid a lot of attention to and worked very hard on. Um, in our lab uh, at Monash University my supervisor Julie Stout uh, has worked a lot in clinical trials and also using digital means of, of conducting cognitive assessment and that was something that we're really quite well placed to do in terms of the security of the data um, and the level of encryption and so on that we use to keep Uh, people's data and privacy safe. Um, So it's always a consideration uh, when you're doing this type of work, but it was something that we were quite confident and quite experienced in, and we're able to ensure that that the data would be safe and very difficult to get hold of if you weren't part of the team.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, in terms of participants that may have been on, um, you know, treatments for their symptoms, did you, were you looking for, did you uh, you know, make it exclusive to people who were not on treatments, or did you um, separate out uh, results by populations that may be on, you know, uh, Korea medications or mm-hmm. or other types of, um, uh, you know, treatments? Sure. So for this study, the main one of the main
2: criteria was just that people wouldn't or currently be in a clinical trial. So. That was the main factor that we were focusing on uh, in terms of that uh, the, the area of your question you have there. Uh, so, yeah, we mainly focused on that. And if people were on some medications for depression or for some other things, then they're still welcome to come into the study.
1: And in terms of, you know, I'm just curious, um, you know, because this is in, in some aspects is, is kind of a sleep study, but I think the, the positive for you is that, you know, you didn't have to have somebody come in and and actually spend time sleeping in a lab. Did you, you know, did you, did, did you find that to be, um, more, uh, representative of You know what the the participant would experience in real life and how it would impact them would you say yeah
2: i believe so and and that was a focus of of what we're trying to do in terms of we're wanting to understand how people are functioning in their day-to-day life Uh, there's always a trade-off i suppose in terms of when people come into the lab you can put them connect them up into all the most amazing technology that can measure heart rates and you know brain electrical signals and so on and get really really detailed information, but they're not sleeping in their own bed Um, Whereas if you do it at home, you don't necessarily have that level of precision, but you are measuring people in their day-to-day life Uh, And that was something that we're just really really interested in how people actually Functioning in their home and in their community. And so yeah, we're able to do that and and collect all this information without needing to see people
1: And so I guess my my question in terms of the results, you know, uh, obviously, you know, if you can talk about, you know, your your findings in general, but also, were were there any outcomes or findings that surprised you that you weren't necessarily expecting or that uh, you didn't think would factor in as, as much as they may have?
2: Yeah. So I guess we'll, we'll start with the, the main findings. Generally, we found as a more simple way to put it would be that if you're uh, sleeping well and have healthy sleep habits and you're getting a good amount of exercise, we're finding that that tended to associate with better cognitive performance. So uh, we didn't have an intervention, so we can't say for sure, you know, if you exercise, you will improve your cognition. But we found For example the participants who were expending more calories during the day were performing better on one of our cognitive tasks uh, which uh, tested working memory and decision making and we found that our participants who were spending more time in bed um, which we measured as the time from when you decide to go to sleep to when you decide to wake up so you might wake up in the morning and decide no i'm I'm not i need more sleep I'll, i'll sleep a little bit longer at that point, where you just said, okay, I'm getting up, was our measure of time in bed. And those that were spending more time in bed were performing a little bit worse on our measure of visual memory that we had on, on the, the smartphone application. So, those were the two main findings that we had. Where we, um, which, which we expected, we expected that that, that maybe the better sleep habits and the better physical activity habits would relate to better cognition. But what I was expecting would be a little bit more interaction between the sleep and physical activity. So we're looking to see if, for example, you uh, had good exercise habits, you're exercising a lot between the week, you would expect that might benefit your cognition. But maybe if you slept poorly, that would kind of undo that or some other uh, way of, of looking at those results. And we didn't find really any interaction between the sleep habits and the physical activity habits,
1: at least with the measures that we had. Uh, That's, that's interesting, because so let me ask you this was, did you, did you identify, I guess what I would call a sweet spot? Because I, you know, typically, um, you know, there's a recommended amount of sleep per night Mm -hmm. for, you know, optimal health, uh, you know, functions. Um, And so you kind of would think that normally, well, if I got, if I'm able to get an extra hour of sleep, that's good. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to mm-hmm. be sharp. I'm going to perform better. But what you're saying is that that may not necessarily be the case, right?
2: Yeah. Um, there'd always be, we didn't hundred percent, uh, Identify a sweet spot, uh, but what we did find was that our group uh, with clinically manifest Huntington's disease tended to spend more time in bed than the other two groups. Uh, And this is reflected in some other uh, research uh, uh, that is out there, uh, two other studies that we looked at that showed that um, the I think might have been manifest, whether those two groups might have been connected, that the HD group tended to wake up later in the morning. So there would be a sweet spot but yeah more is not always better I think would be my response there where if you are staying in bed longer or sleeping longer at some point uh, that may not be beneficial Um, and to just go on a little bit further with that we we don't know yet because we're in the early days of this research but my idea or my thought here is that we do know that sleep disturbance is quite common in Huntington's disease so my thought was that potentially Uh, the manifest or the group with clinical HD sleeping for longer or spending more time in bed may be related to sleep disturbance. Um, So, you know, you and I would know, or everyone would be familiar with when you have a bad night's sleep for whatever reason, you tend to want to sleep for a bit longer in the morning so that you can feel sufficiently rested. Um, So I'd imagine there's some sort of interplay there where not sleeping well during the night may make you want to sleep a bit longer in the morning. Uh, which would indicate that, that treatments for sleep disturbance would most likely be beneficial in HD for cognitive functioning.
1: Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. That that makes more sense. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I would agree. Uh, let me ask you this: um, Going back to the HD Mobile um, Cognitive Test, can you talk through the decision-making one? Because I've I've seen an image of that from your the poster that you presented, and I'm I'm just curious. You know what. What does that entail? What is the person doing um, in that part of the test?
2: Okay, sure. In some ways, it's a a straightforward task uh, in terms of what you're doing, but there's a little bit bit going on there. So in the task, uh, what will happen is on the smartphone screen, a bunch of what we call snowflakes, uh, or or dots, you can call them really, will show up on the, the smartphone screen. And there's a simple question that the participant is given, which is, Uh, do you think there are few or many snowflakes Um, and based off how many dots are on the screen you have to make the choice between the two few or many which you press a button on the smartphone screen so the task uh, involves the person learning from feedback so when you start the task you don't know what the cutoff is for few or many um if you choose few and you're right you get a smiley face if you choose few and you're wrong you get a sad face so The task is able to assess how people learn from feedback and how well they're able to adjust their decisions, but it also looks at a variety of other bits of information such as how fast people respond and how much information or how long they want to look at those dots before they make a decision. So we can look at some really basic um, answers in terms of how often were you correct? And we can also really delve in with some mathematical modeling, which I did elsewhere in my thesis, which can try to understand how much information a person wants before they make a decision and also how fast they can uh, process the the information, the visual information from, from the task.
1: All right, yeah, that's fascinating because I've seen the picture with the with the snowflakes on it and the mm-hmm. and the frown face, um, yes. you know, for the incorrect. But I, I didn't necessarily know, okay, what are you know what are you um, testing in in this uh, you know actual interaction? So I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that uh, explanation. Um, what was it, you know, did uh, in terms of the participants were you know was it a a, a group of people that you would Describe as you know uh, easily adaptable to technology. Were very familiar with technology, or did you have a mix of people that you know don't you know don't care for smartphones, or you know don't uh, you know don't aren't uh, you know big adapters uh, of that sort of sure. technology?
2: Um, yeah, good question and an important question because uh, in terms of wanting to roll out this sort of technology, you do need to be aware that there may be some people who aren't so keen on doing these things on their smartphones. So there may have been some. A self-selection so we, we contact people and, and ask them to be involved in our research and if they don't like the sound of, of doing things on their smartphone or wearing a Fitbit they may well say no um, and same with our Facebook ads the people that are more comfortable with that are more likely to respond uh, and ask to participate um, so there is that element um, although there's a if I could sidetrack just for a moment and mention something that actually I think was quite important um, was that we didn't develop the app in the lab by ourselves. We actually met with these amazing people from the local Huntington's disease community in Melbourne. Um, we had a series of four different meetings where we invited people um, who were manifest for Huntington's disease, pre-manifest, even family members. And we presented the app to them and our idea for the research. And we actually got them to give feedback on, on our whole protocol, not just HD mobile, but the use of Fitbits and so on. So, we were able to go in and chat with people about the, from the community and find out how could we design this app or present the study in a way that would be acceptable to the most amount of people from the community. Um, uh, so that was something that we were very focused on and the help that they gave us was was just absolutely amazing actually. Um, and in the end we had no attrition from uh the whole entire study whatsoever um so that showed us i think that the the approach was quite acceptable to people and not overly burdensome and not overly difficult um and i think that's one of the, the major achievements that we had throughout the whole research process
1: oh wow that's fantastic and that's i mean that's invaluable information to share for you know other people looking to do mm-hmm. studies with uh you know with, with that population is you know get that input and that buy-in um upfront
2: a hundred percent and and we we changed elements we had questionnaires that we wanted to use but the people in our group were like these questions are too long in this questionnaire and it might be difficult and and so on and we i would ask well how much time per day would you be willing to give and in our lab we obviously have a lot of many decades of experience but uh, around doing research in hd but there's absolutely nothing like going directly to the source and just talking to the people that you want to work with and getting their input. Uh, I think we should be doing more of it, actually.
1: Absolutely. Now, in terms of the research project, I know you had uh, you collaborated with a number of other people. Are there um, some that you would like to specifically call out?
2: Um, yeah, so there was, um, I was working with uh, Professor Julie Stout as my main supervisor, who is absolutely uh, invaluable, and also uh, Dr. Sophie Andrews and Professor Mark Balgrove were my main supervisors. Um, there, Sophie has moved from uh, Monash University, she used to be there and Mark's at Monash as well. And a really big thank you to uh, Ricky Romayu from Indiana University um, in uh, Bloomington. Uh, he worked on the Mathematical modeling of that decision-making task we were talking about. So um, that that work that he did with this hierarchical Bayesian modeling is so far outside of my wheelhouse. I could never could have done it. Uh, but we're able to find some really, really useful information out of that work. So I always like to thank him for his participation.
1: And so I guess the last thing I'd want to ask you about this specific research is you know what are the next steps um are there are there um paths that you're already pursuing as a uh, as an outcome of these results or are there um specific recommendations that you think are valuable for you know someone to take the next step on what does the future hold i guess
2: so uh yeah the future holds that we should i think it's important for us to keep moving in this direction and make use of these apps and these wearable technologies to better understand the relationships between just day-to-day sleep and physical activity habits and, and also cognitive functioning. Uh, and, and one of the main recommendations that we had was that, okay, we found that uh, physical activity levels seem to associate with cognitive functioning and our work and some work of, of others has seems to show that sleep timing and, and, and when you're waking up is important for cognitive functioning. So these become uh, factors that are definitely worthwhile uh, looking at or incorporating in interventions that, that are to follow, um, especially around sleep timing and, and so on. So they're two of the main uh, inter- um, suggestions that we would have and that, that we want to do next. Uh, And another big one would be, uh, my study started five years ago, so 2015, and then the Fitbit that we used was reasonably cutting edge, but now uh, the wearable technologies in terms of measuring Physical activity and sleep have advanced a lot more, um, and I think it would be really beneficial for us to start making use of the ability to measure. Um, there's some wearables that can measure, I think, EEG signals uh, from from the brain while you're sleeping, and the new technologies measure heart rate and all sorts of other things. I think those would be actually really useful information to have, and to to see how they interact with cognitive functioning as well.
0: We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, infohsglimited.org, or by calling toll free at 1 800 487 7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode.
1: Well, again, we're here on the HD Insights podcast with Brendan McLaren. And Brendan, I, I want to switch gears now. I, I mean, this has been a fascinating fascinating conversation about the research work you're doing. But I, I do want to spend some time um, letting our audience get to know you a little bit more. So um, where I want to start is something that you let off the podcast with, which is, you know, you have kind of an innate interest in, you know, physical activity and and kind of measuring yourself when we, we talked about Fitbits and, and kind of the, the monitoring technology. Um, is there something, you know, is there a specific sport or activity that you're into? What, what kind of drove that connection for you?
2: Um, I guess I've always been physically active um, and liked being in the gym from a young age and for the last gosh nearly 10 years now i've been training in brazilian jiu-jitsu so a grappling based martial art uh, which i'm quite passionate about uh, and also um, i taught during my 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 phd <laughs> i was teaching that martial art as well um, and i put myself through university or college by working as a personal trainer and a fitness instructor so just from that side i've always had that interest in physical activity and, and being healthy and and was able to see the benefits that has for people, um, and that became something that very naturally I just wanted to bring into the research that I was doing.
1: All right, so then stepping stepping back a little bit, um, you know, what motivated you to get into this type of research, or you know, Huntington's disease specifically, um, certainly yeah. is of interest to our audience, but you know, just kind of getting into this this line of uh, research around uh, you know um, uh, within neurology itself
2: uh really the to be researching huntington's disease was something i I fell into essentially so uh i did a a degree in biological sciences as my first degree and then i was interested in that but it never was so interesting it didn't grab me enough that i wanted to really continue with that as a career or to do a phd and um so i was forced to to take stock of my life at one point and think okay if this isn't what I want to do, what do I want to do? And then I really realised that psychology was, was what I wanted to study and I didn't know why I didn't study it in the first place. So I launched into that, um, did a degree in psychology and here in Australia in our fourth year, you go into like what we call an honours programme where you do a research project and you kind of just get placed really with, with a supervisor and that was where I met um, Professor Julie Stout. Uh, And her lab studying Huntington's disease, uh, which I I didn't really know anything about HD at that point. And once I came into that lab and and saw the amazing work that was being done, then I was like, wow, you know, this is this is really interesting. And I want to continue studying this. And so I dove into the doctorate and committed to a four or five year study of, of Huntington's disease.
1: And you mentioned this research was part of your thesis. So where where do you stand uh, at the moment? Are you, uh, has that been accepted? Are you are you still um, waiting on a you know response? Is it uh, how soon before it's uh, it's doctor Brendan? So uh, um,
2: it's all completed now. Um, I think last week uh, I received the email back saying that the thesis had been assessed by the reviewers and that it had passed. So I think we're in the the paperwork stage now. I need to just do some small edits to the thesis and then that should go through. And maybe in January, I think uh, I'll get to graduate. So it's it's almost, almost done and almost Dr. Brendan.
1: Well, very nice. Well, congratulations on that. And so what else do you have on uh, on your plate right now is it, are there other projects kind of separate from this um is it is it teaching is it just more research For me at the moment a, a lot of teaching so uh, my other passion other than
2: doing this research and and so on is is teaching so I really love to teach at the moment, while I figure out my life post finishing the doctorate, I'm doing quite a lot of teaching uh, and also looking at doing clinical work. So in the future, I would love to maybe have a mix of doing some clinical work where I can weave in research, future research, and also uh, continue to teach uh, and, share, and, and share my knowledge with the, the researchers and, and clinicians that are coming through.
1: And so you're, you know, you're kind of still in in that early stage career-wise, I would say. So yes. adv- what advice would you give to somebody who's, you know, maybe just going into postgraduate or into college and, you know, is interested in getting into research? What are, you know, what are the uh, lessons learned that you have that you would offer up?
2: All right. Terrific question. Um, it's so so fresh. It almost feels <laughs> like I need more reflection uh, to... to to, to go on. Uh, I think, you know, something key I think we'll go with in terms of starting a research project and getting into that is it's a long process. Uh, it can take a lot of years and things can go wrong. So one thing is stay calm and, and, and keep going. Um, there was definitely times in my, my project where things weren't going well and uh, it, it got difficult. Uh, so something that's really important if you're going to go into that research project is to make sure that a large chunk of the research project is something that's really, really interesting for you. Um, I was able to weave in the sleep and physical activity stuff into my project and that always kept me going. And the other element that also sold me on wanting to do my project was the technological side of thing and, and being able to use technology to get in touch with more people and collect more really relevant and ecological valid data. But I think if I didn't have those elements or those factors of the project that I was really interested in, then, when things started going wrong, as they often do, any researcher, <laughs> student researcher, or researcher who was trying to do research in the year of, of COVID uh, would know how things can just change. If you don't have the element that you're really interested in and that keeps you going, I think it makes it hard when things go wrong. Um, so that would be a, a major tip that I would have. Actually, make sure your research project is interesting to you, and it's not just something that you agree to do to to get the the degree at the end or the doctor title at the end.
1: All right. That's great. That's great advice. And and you mentioned something that I, you know, wanted to ask just because of the, the timeliness of it is, you know, what impact COVID may have had on your research, uh, you know, sp- specifically this project, how much of it actually, you know, you mentioned five years uh, ago you started yeah. it, but how much of it overlapped uh, a lot of these shutdowns and and the impact from the pandemic and, and what has, you know, post uh, study and, and with teaching, what impact? How has that changed things for you um, in terms of kind of functioning in this this uh, COVID world that we're we're going yeah. through right now?
2: I was fortunate, very fortunate, to be able to sail through uh, twenty twenty and, and the lockdowns with really minimal impact to myself. Um, so my research had had completed so I'd done all the the recruitment and was really just in the writing up stage um, and got forced to do that from home because we couldn't go to campus anymore um, and I found out that I loved that <laughs> I actually really loved working from home and having my cat sit next to me all day long and being able to see more of my fiance and, and so on so I was very fortunate that it didn't impact me but um I think if if it had have uh, come a little bit earlier, then I would have seen really minimal impact on my study just because uh, all all the the studies that were running it at my uni that required people to come in had to pause and my research we didn't need that Um, and even there was study being a switch to some of the other researchers trying to use uh, or looking at using my app so that they could collect some cognitive data without needing people to come in. So I was very fortunate. It didn't impact me much other than, Uh, making me more keen for working from home. Um, On the teaching side of things, the program I was teaching to was also online. So um, we were actually really well placed when everything shifted over to teaching online because we were already doing that uh, in the program that I was teaching into. So I was very fortunate um, and things didn't really impact me at all uh, somehow.
1: Well, that that is fortunate, uh, for sure. Um, well, Brendan, I, I really appreciate your time and being available to to join us for the HD Insights podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about this research, and i I hope people get a chance to take a look at it. Is there somewhere? Is there a website, or is there somewhere um, they can go to learn more about what you're doing? Ah, good question. Um,
2: probably should have come prepared with <laughs> with something for that. Um may have to it might be worth me emailing something through to you uh or, or i guess my email address might be a good one which is uh brendan b-r-e-n d-a-n dot mclaren m-c-l-a-r-e-n at monash.edu if people would have uh, any questions about the research or wanting to know any more um and maybe i'll make available the website just the landing page for our lab might be a good way to go as well
1: all right excellent yes and for um our listeners we'll uh post that uh, for you on the podcast description page so so check that out and again brendan thank you so much it was it was a pleasure
2: and uh, thank you thank you kevin i appreciate you and i appreciate the time and again also appreciate the work that you're doing with this podcast it's important and i'm glad it's there
1: my thanks again to brendan mclaren for joining us on the hd insights podcast And for you, our dedicated listeners, for your continued interest in this series. At the end of our interview, Brendan mentioned a website that may be helpful in learning more about the research being done out of Monash. That website is hrgv.org.au slash research slash labs slash ccn.html. We've also included that URL in the description for this podcast episode. So until next time, stay safe, be well, and we look forward to bringing you the next episode of the HD Insights Podcast.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.